Let's take our Bibles and turn to the first chapter of First Peter. Before diving into Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to pull over this morning and come up for air and consider what God has to say about suffering. We have some hard passages ahead of us. Over the next couple of weeks, we will look at the Antichrist, the powers of Satan, and a great God-sent delusion. But it is so important that Paul brings clarity to these things because the Thessalonians are under such severe persecution. They thought that they had actually missed the rapture and that the day of the Lord had already come. They thought that they were in the great tribulation. So Paul continues to comfort them as he does in chapter 1 by correcting their theology concerning last things. Because that is what Second Thessalonians is really all about. Comfort and correction. First Peter is very much the same way. We have a different writer, different audience, different circumstance. But the theme of comfort saturates First Peter. First Peter comes to us from a fixed time and place where wearing a Christian t-shirt would get you killed. Much like the Thessalonians, the persecution they faced was unsympathetic and relentless. They suffered for Christ in ways that most of us probably never will. Many of them were publicly tortured, hunted for sport, and made food for animals. Others were covered in melted wax and burned alive as human candles to provide light for Nero's garden parties. They suffered horrendous atrocities, unimaginable horrors, under massive persecution. If anyone really needed encouragement for their faith, these people did. So an aging Peter, prompted and inspired by the Holy Spirit, sat down to write this letter of support. First Peter is just chock full of comfort theology making it one of, if not my favorite, New Testament letter. It breaks the darkness, and it provides light for the soul. So let's see what God has to say about trials and sufferings today, this morning. And we are only going to look at two verses, so please follow along with me as I read them. First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. On a cold February morning in 1555, an English Puritan named John Hooper was burned alive at the stake. He was the first of many to be martyred under the vicious rule of Bloody Mary. When he was condemned, Sir Anthony Kingston pleaded with him to recant. He said, change your mind. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Don't go to the stake. And he shouted to him as he was being condemned. He said, John, life is sweet and death is bitter. To which John replied, listen to this. True it is that death is bitter and life is sweet, but alas. Consider that the death to come is more bitter and the life to come is more sweet. Therefore, for the desire and love I have to the one and the terror and fear of the other, I do not so much regard this death nor esteem this life, but have settled myself through the torments and extremities of the fire now prepared for me, rather than to deny the truth of his word. Wow, what a response. How many of us upon hearing that would throw our arms in the air and scream, Yes, John, yes, let's die together. Let's drink that bitter cup and let's make that journey to a sweeter life. Because here we have a living and a dying example of precious faith, of real faith, 
literally tested by fire and grounded in an eternal perspective that is just rare, that is so rare. Because on the other side of this sweet life and bitter death is an even sweeter life and an even harsher death, one that never ends. Church, the excruciating torture of being burned alive for your faith is something that most of us will probably never face. But how many of us can honestly say, along with John Hooper, I have settled myself through the torments and extremities of the fire now prepared for me? How many of us can honestly say that? I mean, think about it. Whatever hardship, whatever problem, whatever toil, whatever trouble that this life brings you, can you say that? Can you say, I am settled in the truth of God's word? Because, friends, recanting in the face of death is easy. Anyone can recant. Anyone can say, no, no, that's not for me. But guys like John Hooper, they don't die unsettled. They don't die in a state of uncertainty. They can accept the fires of death because they know that they know where they are going. And if you are hoping to see this thing through to the end, then you must have a settled faith. You must No matter what. Because yes, this life is sweet, but even this sweet life is hard. It's hard. Ordeals, hardships, troubles, misery, and distress, they are not abstract concepts for any of us this morning. We all know what pain feels like. We all suffer in various ways to various degrees. And that is why today's text is so helpful. Because no one is exempt, especially Christians. I hate to be the bringer of bad news today, but it has often been said you are either in a trial, coming out of one, or about to go through one. And that's true. Because trials in this life, and especially in the Christian life, they're just simply facts of life. They shouldn't surprise us. Jesus told his disciples in John sixteen thirty three, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Note the certainty there, that in the world you will have tribulation. In other words, living for Christ is not marked by perpetual sunshine. Like it or not, storm clouds are coming. It is a beautiful morning this morning. It's a beautiful day, and I'm so happy to see so many of you here in church because it is so nice outside. Guess what? We live in Washington. It will rain. The rains will come. It's a fact of life. And if you're thinking to yourself, hey, Jesus said that to his disciples, man, and I'm no disciple. He didn't promise me worldly trouble. Then consider what Paul wrote to the average Joe Christian in Philippi. In Philippians 1.29, there he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's a nice way of saying that believers don't get a free pass in life. Rather, it has been granted to you, it has been given to you as a privilege to suffer for Christ. Or how about this one? As we have referenced it a lot lately, everyone's seeker-sensitive life verse. 2 Timothy 3.12 declares what? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be blessed. Right? They will be happy. They will be wealthy and wise and they're going to... No, it says they will be persecuted. They will be persecuted. If you desire to live a godly life, then guess what? You have been promised in Christ persecution. Or consider what Peter has to say just a little bit later on in this same letter. In chapter 4, verses 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised. Rather, prepare yourself for it because trials are par for the course, especially for the Christian life. 
They are unavoidable, inescapable, certain, and settled. They're certain. I don't know about you, but I grew up watching classic movies. Okay, I, I love watching old westerns with my dad. And there's a scene in the original version of The Magnificent Seven where Steve McQueen tells Yul Brenner that he reminds him of a man who fell off of a 10-story building. And as he fell, the people on each floor could hear him say, so far, so good, so far, so good, so far, so good. And that's kind of how we live life sometimes, isn't it? Because it's obvious, it's obvious, we all hit the ground. We all know what's coming. You're either coming out of a trial, you're in a trial, or you're about to go through one. So the obvious question then is why? Why is it in God's plan for Christians to suffer? Why does an all-powerful, all-loving God allow his children to endure tremendous heartache, pain, suffering, and loss? Well, the title of this morning's message is Tested True, What Trials Do. Because trials do serve a purpose. In fact, they accomplish a lot in our lives, and we need to remember that. Especially when it hurts, because when life burns, it is so easy to forget that truth. And when we forget that truth... We typically spiral into a vortex of self-loathing, doubt, bitterness, resentment, anger, selfishness, shadowy thoughts, sleepless nights, and unjustifiable behavior. Left to ourselves alone, these are all natural reactions for us to fall into. But beloved, none of these things are the fruit of the Spirit. None of these things should characterize our lives, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering and loss and anguish and agony. Because God has not called us out of darkness to avoid the light. We need constant reminders of the truth. We need encouragement. And that is exactly what Peter provides here. The first five verses are full of reassurance. They're powerhouse saving truths. But here he delivers three added encouragements for holding on to the joy of your salvation in trial. You want to know how? You want to know how that's achievable? Well, here they are. Three reasons to rejoice in trouble. The first encouragement is simply that trials are temporary afflictions. Trials are temporary afflictions. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In other words, take heart, because all trials have an expiration date. For the Christian, all sorrow must someday eventually die, and die for good. The believer's suffering is a temporary thing. So let's break this down, phrase by phrase. He starts out by saying, in this you rejoice. And so the first thing that we want to know is, what's the this? What is the this? What exactly is it that I am supposed to rejoice in? In this you rejoice. And the answer is simply everything that builds up to this verse. Starting in verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In what exactly? In God's great mercy and his spiritual rebirth. In our living hope, the resurrection, our protected inheritance, God's powerful guardianship, the revealing of our salvation, it's all there. That is what we rejoice in. The joy of our eternal and certain salvation. We rejoice because we have so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for. And by the way, this isn't some quiet meditation of the heart. 
The word that Peter uses here for rejoice, it could accurately be translated greatly rejoice or overjoyed. It refers to an outward expression of exuberance that, that just explodes and overflows from an inward state of rapture. In this, you are overjoyed. And who wouldn't be? If God has been merciful to you by causing you to be born again to a living hope that is grounded in the same power that raised Christ from the dead, if God has set aside an indestructible inheritance for you, and if God has decided to personally guard it and keep it safe, and to guard you and keep you safe until your ultimate salvation is realized at the end of all things, if this is true, and if all of this applies to you, then you have every right to be overjoyed. Every right. On the other hand, though, if the hope of eternal life with Christ forever does not affect you in a positive way, not even in the slightest bit, then you are in serious, serious trouble. If resurrection and glorification doesn't get you excited, then I hate to break it to you, you might already be dead. And if total, certain freedom from sin, death, suffering, and sorrow doesn't stir something within you, then quite frankly... You most likely are lost this morning, and you need the salvation that is found here in this text. So ask yourself, is the salvation described here in this passage mine? Does it apply to me? Do I possess this? Have I been born again to this certain hope? Think about it. If you're sure, just repent. Repent of your sin, even now. If there's any measure of uncertainty in your heart that this does not apply to you. Don't leave here the way that you came. And if you have questions about the gospel or how all this works, don't hesitate to ask. After the service, any of us would be happy to answer any questions and pray for you. But for the rest of us who are eagerly looking forward to receiving the inheritance that God has promised, what do we do in the meantime? What about our present condition? I mean, here and now, where we have been promised what? We've been promised trouble. We've been promised persecution. We've been promised pain. How do we handle it? After all, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now, as in right now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Our hope is grounded in both past and future promises, but for now, we are told to rejoice in our grief. That's tough. That's really hard. Really hard to do. But praise God for that little phrase, for a little while. Because all trials, every single one of them, for the Christian, are temporary afflictions. I am so thankful that trials do not last forever. Can I get an amen from anybody on that one? I am so thankful and so glad that trials do not last forever. Unlike our eternal, indestructible inheritance with Christ, trials are temporary. And the worst of days are not here for good. That is a huge blessing. Now, some have tried to force this phrase for a little while, to act as a sort of guarantee for shorter trials. And we know that that's simply not the case. That's not the case. Growing up, we'd call that hogwash. Some people are afflicted with supreme tragedy their entire lives. And even those who first received this letter, they were looking at lifelong persecution with no real hope of reprieve. And it came. Nero was not a good dude. You don't have to pick up a history book to know that. These people suffered greatly. So we know that that's not what Peter had in mind when he wrote this. That's not the point he's trying to make here. Rather, he's saying that nothing we face, nothing we face here and now is as permanent as eternity. Nothing. A million lifetimes of intense sorrow are just a drop in the bucket compared to forever. 
And granted, it doesn't feel like it. Living in the moment is easy. And it's hard to think ahead to a time when things will not always be the way that they are right now. But we know that a time is coming when there won't be any pain, sorrow, death, or sin. Just our glorified Christ and we glorified with him. And isn't that an encouraging truth? And to have that forever, to have him forever. Even if you live to 109, you will look back on this life in glory and you will say, where did it go? Even if it was a horrible life, even if you lived the worst life imaginable, if God just put everybody on a scale and you were at the very far end, it's just, it's just a moment, folks. We're here and then we're gone. It's just for a little while. This next phrase, if necessary, refers to God's sovereign control over all of our circumstances. That is to say, nothing that we face is unnecessary. And that is a hard truth to grasp as well, but it's so helpful. Nothing we face is unnecessary, if necessary. I once heard it said that God is too loving to be unkind and too wise to make a mistake. And that is true. He is too loving to be unkind and too wise to make a mistake. Christians, we won't face hardship unless it is necessary. Unless it serves a purpose. Because God is in the business of redemption. And he doesn't throw things away. Rather, he redeems them and makes them better. And he uses them to turn them around for our good and his glory. Let's turn real quick to James chapter 1. This is the great big brother passage to our text. James chapter 1. And look at verses 2 through 4. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So tested faith produces what? What does it produce? It produces steadfastness. According to the text, it produces endurance, steadfastness, fullness, and complete perfection. In other words, trials fill in the gaps in our lives. They complete us. They strengthen us in areas of weakness until ultimately we lack nothing. And in lacking nothing, we gain everything. God's ultimate goal is to see us perfected more and more into the likeness of his perfect son. And trials are the means that God uses to accomplish that purpose. Well, these temporary afflictions are necessary. Back to 1 Peter 1, verse 6. You will notice that the apostle intentionally refuses to gloss over the pain and suffering that comes along with trials. He acknowledges the fact that you have been grieved. Peter doesn't ignore the pain or promote some sick worldview that enjoys suffering. And obviously we shouldn't either. Just because we don't lose our joy in suffering doesn't mean that we should enjoy the suffering itself. That's sick, right? That's not something that normal people do, and that's not what the God of Scripture expects from us either. We don't enjoy suffering, and and holding on to our joy in the face of suffering, it doesn't mean that we have to lie about it either. But lying about it is a much more common and acceptable practice, isn't it? When somebody asks you, how are you doing? And let's just say you've been reduced to a crust of bread. You are having a terrible, terrible day. You're having a terrible month, a terrible year, a terrible life. And someone actually has the audacity to ask you how you're doing? How do you respond? Are you the grumpy old man on Dennis to Menace? Or, or, or what, are you, what do you do? Normally we smile and we what? We lie through our teeth, don't we? We say everything's fine. We don't tell them the truth. We say it's fine. Friends, grief happens. Grief happens. And we shouldn't gloss over that reality in order to maintain a joyful mask. Especially... When the heat of life keeps getting hotter. So how do we do this? 
How do we be honest and joyful at the same time? Well, we begin with the truth. We remind ourselves of the truth while being honest about our circumstances. And we hold on to the hope described here in verses 3 through 5. And in doing so, we retain our joy. We genuinely retain our joy. In the eye of our trials, let's be real honest about real pain and grieve. That's fine. But in doing so, remember the truth. And then hold fast, hold tight to the truth, and find comfort in the truth. Because that is where real joy comes from. Real joy does not come from the trial itself, but it does come from a proper response to the trial. We can't control our circumstances, but we can trust God, hold on to hope, and yes, even find real joy in the midst of real pain. And besides, let's not forget that Jesus, our King, He was no stranger to suffering either. Isaiah 53.3 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Well, fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Peter says that Christ's sufferings there stand as an example for us and that we have been called to follow in his footsteps. If we are to be like Christ in his glory, then we must be like him in his humiliation and in his suffering. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus asked the question, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Note the pattern there as we've seen it before. Suffering first, then glory. It was necessary for Christ to suffer first, and we are no better than our Savior. No one gets a free pass. Trials hurt, that's a fact. And when the pain comes, what do we do? We grieve. We grieve. Notice too, that these temporary afflictions, they come in all shapes and sizes. He says, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials. By the way, the word for trials here, just so there's no confusion, it's a very broad and general word. It's a common word that refers to a wide category. In fact, in biblical Greek, there are a number of other specific words, more specialized words, words for persecution, words for tribulation. But this word, interestingly enough, none of those words are found in any of Peter's writings, by the way. He prefers this broader word, this bigger category word of trials, this common general word that shows up a lot. And I say that because there's no indication that Peter has anything specific in mind when he writes this. Rather, he napalms the whole thing by addressing all of the various types of trials a Christian will face. Because there are a lot of them, some great, some small. Some of us will have physical trials, relational trials, emotional trials, spiritual trials. And these can all manifest themselves in a myriad of forms, as financial trials, marital trials, parental trials, vocational trials. The list goes on and on. Insert your category here. You might even find yourself dealing with two or more of these things at one time, because it isn't a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. Or as Peter says here, there are various broad trials. For instance, some trials are common or natural. They're just a fact of life. Job 5, 6, and 7 says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now granted, that was one of Job's bonehead buddies that said that. But the point is simply this, that we are born into trouble. And there is simply no escaping it. Other trials are corrective. The psalmist declares in Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. In other words, before the pain showed up, my life was a lethargic shipwreck. I didn't care. 
But after a good trial, God smacked me in the face. And I got serious about God's word. So sometimes they're corrective. Sometimes our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he delivers the spiritual spanking we deserve. And other times, trials are simply designed for the sole purpose of glorifying God. Giving God the glory. The man born blind is is an excellent example. Or the story of Job. You'll remember that Job was not afflicted for doing anything wrong. He was afflicted for doing everything right. He was afflicted so that the world would see that it is possible to love and trust God simply for who he is and not what we can get out of him. There are all types of trials, various kinds. They come in various shapes and sizes, but thank God that they are temporary afflictions. As hard as anyone can try, they cannot ultimately rob us from the overflowing joy of our salvation. That's ours. We own that, or at least we should. No, trials are necessary. They hurt. They bleed us dry. But in the end, they don't last forever. The horrors of this life are temporary. To quote another Puritan, Thomas Watson, from his masterwork, The Art of Contentment, he writes, Whatever affliction or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. I love that quote. That is such an encouraging quote. Whatever affliction or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. Isn't that good? Whatever you face in this life, that's all the hell you will ever have. So friend, don't trade the joy of your eternal salvation for a temporary trial. It's not worth it. Instead, hold on to God's truth, God's promises, and be encouraged by them. The first great reason to rejoice in trouble here is because trials are temporary. And that's good news. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain that trials are also tests of faith. They are tests of faith. Look at the beginning of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now let's stop there for a moment. It may not feel like it, but tests of faith are actually good things for us to go through. They're good things because they give us validation of authenticity, and we need that. Much like the tests and quizzes that we suffered through in school when we were kids. We all remember those, right? Just thinking about it raises my temperature a few degrees. Not many of us look forward to test day. I know I never did because tests are not fun unless you're the know-it-all that sits in the front row. But without tests, without quizzes, we would have no idea how we were doing in class. And our grades, ideally at least, are designed to reward our work, to authenticate our knowledge, and to prove what we know. But when it comes to faith and fire, the only grades available are pass and fail. You are either saved or you're not. And genuine faith passes through the fiery test. But a fake faith doesn't make it. Just as metal is thrown into a furnace and only the purity of it remains, likewise we are cast into the furnaces of life in order to test the genuineness of our profession of faith. So the question is simply this. Are you for real? Is your faith a real faith, or one tainted by the alloys of unbelief? Do you melt when blasted by the heat of anguish? You call yourself a Christian, and you as a Christian have been promised persecution, pain, heartache, toil, trouble. Well, prove it. Prove it. Trials are tremendous opportunities to show yourself and the world literally what you're made of. Those who pass the test come out the other side with something better than what they started with, and that's assurance. Assurance. Their raw faith is proved to be genuine and preciously permanent. So in the end, trials are a painful gift. They strengthen our resolve and they verify our salvation. They sharpen us and develop our character. And that character eventually gives way to what? Hope. 
Romans 5, Paul says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Trials tear us down to build us up into something stronger, steadfast, able to endure to the very end. They produce endurance. Remember what we read just a few minutes ago in James. The testing of your faith develops steadfastness. It's the same word there that we see here in Romans, often translated endurance. And it literally means to bear up under a great weight. So when the pressure comes, when you are tempted to recant or throw your arms in the air or surrender to our flesh and walk away, we don't. Rather, we bear up under the great weight of it all. We endure, we stand firm. Because Christians, we don't walk away from our troubles. Our hope and our help, we don't fold, we flourish. After all, God officiates the test in order to build endurance in the ones that he has already caused to be born again. Those who possess a real and precious faith. And that's not all. He actually gives us the strength we need to pass the test and endure to the very end, proving that our faith is real every step of the way. If it were not for trials, our faith would not be authenticated and we would be left to second guesses. But the assurance of authenticity, the validation of faith, the ultimate stamp of approval from God himself, that is the most valuable thing there is. It's priceless. It's better than riches. And it's better than gold. Back when this letter was written, gold was the most valuable metal in the world. And the goldsmith would take that precious ore and place it in the furnace long enough for the flames to remove every cheap impurity. He would then pour it out and fashion it into a beautiful piece, something to be cherished and admired by somebody else. Well, Peter reminds us here that a pure faith is better than pure gold. The riches of this world are fleeting. They may survive a temporary fire, but they won't survive forever. They fade, sometimes quickly, like the dream you had last night, sometimes slowly, like a set of old curtains that have been left in the sun for too long. But one thing is certain. The riches of this world do not last. They evaporate in the flames. But real faith, genuine faith, lasts forever. That has been tested by the heat of life. It will yield eternal salvation. Friends, God is not in the business of growing pansy Christians in temperature-controlled glass houses. He doesn't plant us in little pots or gently water our fragile leaves with a fine mist. Because that's not what God wants. That's not what he wants to make out of us. No, he wants, he wants something mightier than that. Because our God is mighty. He desires to cultivate a forest of mighty redwoods who have endured triumphantly against years of weathering storms. He doesn't take us out of this world once we're saved because glasshouse pansy Christians, quite frankly, are lame. They're lame. Instead, he exposes us to the elements, turns up the heat, and blasts us where, he, where we need it. A fine mist does little for cleansing the Christian of pride, self-reliance, and sin. So God plants his people in the wild. It has been said that the eastern goldsmith would keep the gold in the fire until he could see his face reflected in the metal. And that is exactly what our loving Father does with us. While we burn, we too often focus on the flames, but God sees a reflection. When he looks through the fire, he sees the splendor and the beauty of Christ. He does this for his ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. These tests of faith serve a glorious purpose. To burn away the trash, to make us more like his son, to prove that our faith is genuine. Only a great God can make the best out of our worst. Amen? Praise God for that precious gift 
of divine validation. Tested true, it's what trials do. Well, so far, we've seen that trials are temporary afflictions and they're also tests of faith. And how comforting is that to know that God is in control and that he has an even bigger picture in mind. To know that the pain is temporary and that it has a purpose. That's good stuff. But now we get to the really, really, really good part. I mean, this is, these, this is the goods. Because here at the end, we see that trials are totally worth it. Totally worth it. Look at the rest of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the result of genuine faith that has been proven true by trials? Praise and glory and honor. I can't speak for you, but I've been guilty many times of just passing way too quickly over a string of good words like that. Praise and glory and honor. I think to myself, yeah, those are all good things, and and then I just hurry and move along to the next flow of thought, right? We all do that at times, but it's a common mistake to make, but maybe we should just slow down for a little bit, not take it so fast. Take the time to pause and appreciate what these words actually mean. This word praise, it means public approval. And here it refers to the open recognition that we will receive from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that each one will receive his commendation from God. At the end of all things, those who have been proven true will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's praise. Public approval and open recognition. Totally worth it. Glory. Glory here refers to the completion of our transformation into an image that resembles our glorified Savior. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Inwardly, this is already true. Even now, our inner man is being formed and fashioned day by day into the image of Christ. But soon the day is coming when he will transform even our decaying outer bodies into eternal monuments to his glory. And then Paul makes that bold declaration of Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. John says that when we see him, we will be like him, and to finally behold his glory will be unlike anything that we have ever known. In other words, totally worth it. And the final result we see here is honor. Another word for honor is distinction. And every true follower of Christ will receive distinction from the Father as part of their reward. This is a promise that Christ made 30 years before this letter was written. Back in John chapter 12, verse 26, he said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I I can't even imagine. I can't even begin to think about what that would look like, let alone feel like, to be honored by God himself. This God who always has been, who spoke all things into existence, to think that he will honor me. This God who sees my every sin, who knows my darkest thoughts, he will honor me. This God who sent his son, his only son, to become a man, live a perfect life, and die at the hands of sinful men, only to conquer death, rise from the grave, and ascend on high, where he now sits next to the Father, constantly praying for me. This same God will someday 
honor me? Beloved, I don't know the details or the immensity of whatever it is that you are facing today, but this God does. And he says, your faith is worth holding on to till the very end. Because the results of a tested faith are totally, totally worth it. True Christians bend, but they don't break. They persevere to the end and they get stronger along the way. If you are suffering today, the best thing that you could do, the best thing you could do is to cry out to your Savior. Cry out to the one who truly cares, who knows every intimate detail of your situation. Call out to the one who has promised eternal blessing in exchange for these temporary troubles. Call out to the one who knows what it's like to bear the full weight of your sin. Call out to Jesus. He is our greatest counselor, our greatest friend, our greatest savior. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therefore, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who else could you possibly turn to? So turn to the faith maker, to the great teacher, the test maker. And when the world turns against you, turn to Jesus. Because this world is full of weak-willed, self-absorbed, little faith, pansy so-called Christians. With eyes fixed on the flames, no concern whatsoever for forever. Not focused on the Savior. Friends, do not be one of them. Do not be one of them. Don't fail this test. Turn to Jesus. It is the best thing you can possibly do. Amen? Well, before we close the book, let's not fail to look at that final phrase here, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. History is full of legends, stories that may or may not be true as they live on in the imagination and and are excited from one generation to the next. One such legend surrounds the Battle for Waterloo in 1815, just a little over 200 years ago. There's a famous story where the Duke of Wellington led the forces of England against the infamous Napoleon himself. This was before the invention of the telephone or even the telegraph. So the people of London had to nervously wait for word to arrive, well after the fighting had ended. It was a history-making battle, and everyone was on pins and needles. Everyone wanted to know the outcome. Every Englishman really wanted to know immediately, but they had to wait. So they waited, and they waited, and they waited, until finally a boat appeared off in the distant fog. And this boat used a device called a semaphore to relay its message back to shore. Well, unfortunately, the message that the people on shore received was brief and discouraging. Only two incredibly depressing words came through. Wellington defeated. Wellington defeated. As the word traveled quickly, hearts sank all over London. The value of war bonds plummeted. Grown men were weeping in the streets. England's last stand had resulted in failure, and Napoleon's comeback appeared to be unstoppable. It wasn't until some time later, when the fog lifted, that the rest of the message came through. Wellington defeated the enemy. Wellington defeated the enemy. And immediately, hopelessness transformed into happiness. Tears of agony became tears of joy. And the people realized that their defeat was a lie, that their victory was real. And so they exploded with rapturous resolve, and Napoleon was never able to truly recover after that great defeat. Friends, this is but a small taste of what it will be like for us once Christ is revealed. For now, the world lives in a fog. They look to the cross, and all they see is defeat. It's all foolishness to them. 
And you and I, we are fools for believing it. But soon the day will come when Jesus will be seen for who he truly is by everyone. Everyone will know him as king when he is revealed. Church, victory is ours. Christ defeated the enemy. The rest of the world only sees half the message. They see Christ defeated. But we know the truth. Christ defeated the enemy. Death has been destroyed. Sin's authority has been abolished. How? By his victory at the cross. And soon the fog that clouds the minds of the wicked will rise. And all will see, everyone will see that he is king. And that we were right all along. That our seemingly worthless faith is in fact extremely precious after all. And the so-called men of power and influence, the wisest this world has to offer, they will hide in shame and foolishness. They will run but fail even at that because there will be no place to go, nowhere to escape the awesome power of our eternal God and our righteous King. Being a Christian is not popular now, but trust me, you will want everyone to know that you are a Christian that day. You will. So bringing this back around to our current study, I'd like to close our time In 2 Thessalonians, we have already seen in chapter 1 how Paul has comforted the Thessalonians with these same truths that we've looked at here in 1 Peter, especially with regards to the big revealing of Christ and how it brings tremendous blessings for the man and woman of faith, but it also brings serious grief and an even more bitter death for the faithless. So let's look at the heart of chapter 1 again, starting in verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Christian, your unwavering belief, your tested faith is precious. It is precious now and it will be precious then when you stand amazed, marveling at the glory of his might among all of his faithful. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the world is turned upside down, when everything is flipped over on its head, when we finally share in the visible glory of our risen Savior forever and ever. For now we see him through the eyes of faith alone. But that will not be the case once the curtain is drawn back for good at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can see how encouraging Peter and Paul's words are here for the suffering Christian. Charles Spurgeon once said, There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers below. Trials are coming, so bear this in mind while you bear your earthly cross. These temporary afflictions are here to harden and prove your faith. So you can share in the praise and the glory and the honor of Christ himself once he is revealed. That's good news. That's comfort theology at its best. No matter how bad things get, remember that. Remember that trials are temporary afflictions, tests of faith, and totally, totally worth it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you again. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Lord, we eagerly look forward to that revelation. We can't wait to share in your glory forever and ever, to look back on this vaporous life 
to see it for what it is, to have that eternal perspective, not just be something that we long for, not something that we look forward to and hope for, but for that to be the reality of our everyday life moving forward for the rest of eternity. God, we long for that. We look forward to it. But right now, here in the midst of pain, Lord, we grieve. If now, if necessary, Lord, we grieve. And we, we pray that you would grant relief where that would be helpful. But for everyone here this morning who is suffering a trial, who is coming out of one or about to go into one or right in the middle of it, Lord, I pray that you would comfort them with these words, that you would comfort them with your word, that they would hold on to these truths, that they would write them down, that they would underline them in their Bible, that they would memorize them and carry them with them in their heart as they go through this pain and through these trials. Because, Lord, we know, we know that they are necessary. We know that they are temporary. They're only here for a little while. We know that they serve a purpose. We know that you are in control of all things. And we know that there is something even far greater to come out of it all. That we can have true assurance. That we can have your stamp of approval. That we can know that we know that we are saved and that we are yours and we belong to you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that. That you would work that, that miracle in people's lives today that their hearts would be encouraged and strengthened, and that we would be transformed more and more into the image of your Son as we look forward to the praise and the glory and the honor that you have promised us, that you have promised to those who passed the test. Lord, thank you. Thank you again for all that you have promised us, for all that you have started, all that you are doing. And I pray that you would carry us through. Give us the strength that we need to endure whatever comes our way and make us stronger in the face of adversity. We give you all the praise and all the glory in your name. Amen.